Okay, good morning, all. Um, is this volume okay, or do I need to turn it up? Is it okay? Everybody can hear okay? Okay. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. God, we ask that as you guide us to fall deeper and deeper into grace, that it would be for our mutual joy and for the joy of the one who sent us, Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Okay, so we're very lucky to have with us this morning the... Um, Chief of Staff from the Diocese of Texas, Reverend Canon John Newton. Uh, as many of you have or, or know about, John's written two books, uh, New Clothes and Falling into Grace, and he'll be talking about these books. He brought a few copies with him and is available to sign them afterward. Um, but you should know, John's been in the diocese now about With the diocese or... This is a great example of how to introduce somebody, isn't it? Try to know nothing, and then they'll tell you everything. Well, before John was the chief of staff, he was the director of spiritual formation in the diocese. So um, John is going to come and talk to us, in addition to preaching this morning at 8 and 10.30, he's going to talk to us about his books. So please give a warm welcome to John. So what I want to do um, is maybe just talk a little bit about uh, why I wrote this, new in bo this newest book, Falling Into Grace, uh, and to maybe say a little bit about what I learned in writing that, and, and really both books. But I'll, I'll speak to the second book that I wrote um, uh, in terms of like lessons that I've learned and how my thinking has shifted, and then we'll pause for some conversation, and if you don't want to talk, then I'll just keep on talking, and, and we'll kind of go from there. Um, and I did, you know, as Mike said, I, I did bring um, some uh, copies of Falling into Grace in case you do want to buy one. Now, just because I brought books, uh, I don't want you to feel any pressure um, to buy a book. No one has to buy a book. Um, there's, there's no reason why my beautiful daughter Annie has to go to college or anything like that. So you don't worry about buying books. That's just, that's just not something <coughs> we need to focus on. <coughs> Um, so the reason I, I, I wrote this new book, Falling Into Grace, is because what I wanted to do was to offer people a grace-infused map of the Christian spiritual life that I really am coming to believe people are desperate for, uh, a map that rings true to people's lived experience of what it means to be a fragile human being in a broken and sometimes harsh world, but also a map that's consistent not only with Jesus's teachings, but with the way that our Lord actually lived his life. Because the truth is, and I imagine this is true for anyone in this room, is that my truest self, my deepest self, cares deeply about what the church values whenever we are at our best. I deeply want people to feel loved and included, and I genuinely long for people to experience something of what likes transformation in their life. And I want that interchange to correspond to an outer change so that people actually feel empowered to make a positive love-spreading difference in our world, in our families, in our communities. And as stewards of the Christian gospel, I do believe it is the church's job to offer such a map 
a map of what traveling this particular road, whereby we experience transformation in order to be a conduit of transformation, that it's the church's job to offer a map of what traveling this road might look like over a lifetime. And so whether we're a stay-at-home parent, you know, knee-deep in diapers and soccer practice, or uh, we are in a leadership position at work, or maybe we're retired, whatever our um, station in life happens to be, wherever God has placed us, if we are conscious of a desire to be a conduit through which God's kingdom flows out of us into the world, if we are conscious of that desire to make a positive, love-spreading difference, the question then becomes, how does that actually happen? Um, Is there not seven easy steps, not five spiritual laws, not uh, another book of spiritual disciplines, but is there a map, uh, a picture of our soul's inner landscape that can help us in our spiritual journey? That's the question I was asking myself as I sat down to write Falling into Grace. Now, I know that, um, <laughs> I know that other preachers never do this, um, but sometimes when it's been a very busy week and Friday rolls around and I don't have a sermon ready for Sunday, what I'll sometimes do is look back and see what I preached on three, maybe six, maybe nine years ago. And then after giving that sermon a really good read, uh, I get really depressed. And then I think to myself, oh my gosh, I really should have been fired for preaching that sermon. Um, and, And I'm obviously joking just a little bit, but whenever I do look back and I get that feeling, it's not because my sermon three years ago was necessarily wrong. But so often when I look back and I get that feeling, one of the things I'm present to is that my sermon did fail to honor the truth that as human beings, you and I just have some real limitations. And so what I used to offer uh, as a preacher was 100% motivation, inspiration, a direction to travel, maybe even a few tools for the journey. And by the way, I still offer those things. And I believe they can be very, very useful. But what I'm coming to believe as a preacher and as a priest and as a person is that if motivation and inspiration and spiritual tools are the only thing that we have on our spiritual map, if this is all we're working with, then a time will inevitably come when we feel absolutely lost. Maybe it's a tragedy. Um, that befalls us or someone we love. Maybe it's an addiction that we can't shake. Maybe it's a massive failure or a change in life that we find we cannot bounce back from. Or, you know, maybe we just wake up one day and we realize that no matter how hard we try, um, how hard we're working on our relationship with God, that our spiritual toolkit isn't enough to get us to that place where we just assume that we would always end up. And so as I wrote this book, I was hyper aware that the language I was using and that the church was using to describe the spiritual life, it was 100%, it was all language of ascent, right? We talk about growing up spiritually. We talk about waking up, about the need to increase our faith. St. Benedict, um, he even talked about climbing the ladder of humility. 
which I think is just great when you look at that through the lens of our culture, right? You can climb the corporate ladder Monday through Friday, then come to the church on Sunday and climb the ladder of humility. Because there's just something, I think, about the Western individualistic psyche that loves the idea that all we need is just a little motivation, a little inspiration and the right spiritual tools because we're the ones in control and we're the ones who climb. So the reason I wrote Falling Into Grace was to remind the church and, frankly, really to remind myself that the Christian gospel is not about our climb. It's about God's descent. It's about God's descent into our world and God's descent into our mistakes and our pain and our suffering. It's about God's descent into the heartbreak that is often human history. And as Christians, we have a word for that descent. We call that grace. And so that's the reason I wrote this book, first and foremost, to offer weary travelers a map of the spiritual life that talks a little bit more about falling than it does climbing, failure instead of achievement, relinquishment instead of control, grace instead of practice, healing more than holiness and receptivity than action. Now, is this the only map of the Christian spiritual life? The map to end all maps, you know, look at this one and ignore everyone else? Absolutely not. It's just a map, nothing more, nothing less. Um, You know, it's probably not a map that's developmentally appropriate for a first grader. Um, And it's also not a map that can't coexist with your book of spiritual disciplines when what you actually need might be a set of practices uh, in order to recenter your relationship with God. But I do believe that the map that I offer in Fallen Into Grace is honest and true and hopeful and aligned with the Christian gospel. But above all else, I believe that it's a map that can actually get us to the things that we deeply value as disciples of Jesus. Justice evangelism, better relationships, reconciliation. And so essentially, and I'm going to press on just for another five minutes and we can kind of pause for some conversation, the thesis of the book and the core belief behind it is that if you and I are to be the radical lovers that Jesus Christ invites us to be, if we are to be people who exude love, joy, peace, patience, compassion, if we're going to be that conduit through which the kingdom of God flows from us and into our community, if we are to be that conduit, um, you and I, we don't need to try harder. We don't need to memorize more Bible verses. We don't need to join um, another book study. Unless, of course, you're studying Fallen Into Grace, in which case, you know. No, what we need, I think, uh, is healing. We need love. We need grace. And we need a deep heart knowledge of God's unconditional blessing. We need our hearts to know the truth about our baptismal identity, that each one of us has been sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism, and that we are marked as Christ's own forever, that we are unconditionally loved and safe, not because of anything we've done or could do, but rather because of who God is and because it is God's delight to call each one of us by name, to create us in God's image, 
and that we are uniquely special to God. And so that's the foundational theology of grace behind the book, the main idea that I'm working with in the book, that um, God's grace is central, but also that God's grace often flows into our life in the weak and broken parts, and that God's grace flows out of those same parts, that God's grace flows in to the weak and broken parts, and out of those same parts, grace flows out into the world. And just so we're really clear that I'm not trying to pawn off some, um, you know, new age self-help thinking here, I just want to share one or two Bible verses that really um, I meditated on in writing the book. Um, In 2 Timothy, Paul writes, do your best to present yourself to God as one already approved, as one already approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Or as he writes in Galatians, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me, who loved me and gave himself for me. Or as Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. The Father does not give you the kingdom begrudgingly. It is his pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, I'm going to stop there. I originally had like 45 Bible verses in my notes I was going to read to you. Lucky for you, I'm, I'm not going to read them all. But, but essentially, the Bible has this funny, countercultural, life-changing idea that runs so completely counter to the message we inherit from our world, which is that God loves us and that God cherishes us, not in spite of our weaknesses, but rather in and through those weaknesses that we are already approved, that we don't need to be ashamed, and that transformation happens as we present ourselves to God and to each other as a people who know, not in here, but right here in our hearts, how deeply loved and cherished by God we are. And here's the thing. I know that sounds nice. It sounds cute. It sounds sentimental. But actually having your heart feel the deep blessing of God, um, it's actually really, really hard work. Um, And it takes time and it takes a community because, you know, and and it also takes uh, support and prayer and and pain because the world we live in, it sends the exact opposite message. The world we live in says, if you want to be worthy of love and belonging, you first have to do something. First do something to make you worthy of love. Be beautiful, be successful, be smart, have the perfect kids, the perfect smile, make partner at the firm. You know, the world's list goes on and on and on because the world we live in doesn't just hand out unconditional blessings. I'm not sure if you've noticed that about our world, but it's not just going to hand out an unconditional blessing. But here is the wonderful thing about the church and our Lord Jesus. Um, God does. We do hand out unconditional blessings. It's our delight to do that. It's our mission to do that. And our work as a people of God is for that unconditional blessing to seep so deeply into our heart that nothing could be more natural than extending that same blessing to others. I want to share one quote with you I have here in my notes um, about someone who I think is pretty steeped in our do-something culture. This person writes, 
I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it, and I discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage, and I think that I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And again and again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that is always pushing me, pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. That comes from a <clears throat> one of our philosophers of our culture. Um, anyone know who said that? That's Madonna. And Vogue magazine. Um, it's amazing what you can get when you read Vogue. Um, <laughs> but I, I share it with you because it really captures, I think, the difference between what the world says is true and what Jesus says. The world says that you have to prove that you're not mediocre. <coughs> um, <coughs> sorry. Uh, Jesus says that you don't. Um, that you are uniquely special to God and that only as you know that blessing in your heart um, can grace flow out of the real you, who you actually are, and bless the world. Now, I have some more notes, and I, I can keep going, but I want to pause here to see what's resonating, uh, what questions you have, what comments you have. So uh, any, any questions or, or comments? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so the question is, how do you communicate that question to the nuns, uh, a group of people who, um, it's not that they're even hostile towards the church, it's just that they're kind of checked out. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful question. Um, and I'd, I'd be curious to know uh, what you think um, as a community, because the answer is not in here, but it's in the collective wisdom of the room. But I'll, I'll kind of take a stab at a few things. Uh, the first is um, to think about who those nuns are that you already have a relationship with. And if the answer is, I can't think of any, then the first step is actually to pray about building those relationships, because... Um, good news and blessing, it always flows in the context of relationship. Relationship is not a part of our faith. Relationship is our faith. God is relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if you want to be uh, a conduit of that good news to a specific portion of our society, the nuns, the first question is, God, how are you inviting me, how are you inviting us to build these relationships to be a blessing? Um, but the second is... Uh, I think that we embody good news before we proclaim it. Um, and, you know, so the, the traditional, like, paradigm for faith in our culture is uh, believe first, behave second, belong third. So, you know, first, okay, do you believe what I believe? Great. Um, 
uh, now that you believe what I believe, uh, why don't you behave as I do? And now that you believe as I do and behave as I do, you belong to the community. And I think grace kind of flips that. It starts with belonging, you know, that you just kind of begin the relationship saying you belong. And as, as that relationship kind of cultivates and, and, and percolates, and all of a sudden the behavior of the nuns might change, and who knows, maybe they'll wake up one day to realize that they actually believe uh, in the same Lord that you do. But I, I say that, that the, about, about flipping that paradigm, because one thing that we can't do when we engage anyone is make the gospel transactional. Like, I've got Jesus, you don't, and so I'm, I'm going to enter this relationship trying to figure out how to bring Jesus to you. Um, I, I know that, that, that that's the traditional paradigm for evangelism, but the moment we kind of enter in that transactional um, mindset, I think we kill the very roots of evangelism. And so a question I would ask someone trying to engage the nuns who rightly want to bring their faith to the nuns uh, would not be um, God, uh, the, the, the only prayer would not be God, what am I called to bring to them? But Lord Jesus, how am I going to discover you in and through these new relationships? In other words, we enter these relationships looking for Jesus first, trying to share Jesus second. So that'd be my stab at it. Yeah. But other thoughts about evangelism and what does it mean to share this message? Or other questions? Yeah. The whole thing? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so there's a lot of questions there. So I'll, I'll get back to the motive thing in a bit. That A lot of people had that question during the Great Awakening, and it got us into all types of trouble, you know, looking too closely at our motives for serving God. But what, what strikes me about your question um, that I think I, that the angle I want to take it is that, um, yes, we love the Lord, but we also all have an image of God. And often that image is unconscious and unexamined. And so, and so for instance, um, who is God? Is God a, is God a judge? Is God kind of like an accountant, kind of weighing the good and the bad and, and kind of doing the math to see whether you're in the red or the black? Is God like a policeman, kind of always looking after you and ready to give you a citation for, you know, minor infractions? Is God a, a mother or a father? And if so, what was your own mother and father like? Because you're always going to understand God as father uh, unless you do some work through the lens of your own father. Uh, what I'm getting at is that we all have kind of an image of God um, that impacts how we approach 
uh, something like grace. And so if you're like me, you know, I grew up thinking that the Bible was God's textbook on how to be a, a good person and to get ourselves rid of all the brokenness and pain. And so I actually imagined growing up, I thought that God was like a talent scout. Um, and he was, uh, or and it was growing up, yeah, God was on a quest to, to find the best moral athletes he was recruiting to help his team win. That's how I thought of God. And of course, um, as a 17-year-old, uh, I was very confident as I envisioned God as a talent scout that God was very, very lucky to have me on his team. Uh, I felt that very, very strongly. Um, but there's also pressure, right, because God was counting on me. Um, and, and I say that because whatever our view of God is, if we view God as stern or as disappointed or as letting us into the kingdom but only begrudgingly, um, I would question whether our image of God is the God that we see clearly revealed in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd question whether that image of God is making us a conduit of grace for other people. And, and so I, I just say that because the first thing I would ask us to, to consider is, well, what is our image of God? And if you haven't thought about this, it's worthwhile going home and really spending some time in prayer. Get out a journal. Ask yourself, how do I see God? Is God distant? Is God angry? Is God watching my behavior and weighing the good and the bad? Or, you know, I mean, what's going on? I, I um, re- recall a story about um, an author by the name of Brennan Manning, um, who was a, a great author. He died several years ago. He wrote a lot about grace, but he tells a story about um, one of his friends, a Catholic priest, who was wandering the streets of um, Ireland and as he's, he's walking the streets, he sees a beggar. Uh, and as he gets closer to the beggar, uh, he realizes that this beggar is deep in prayer. Um, deep, deep in prayer. And um, so the priest stops and looks at this beggar and says, uh, I can see that you are really close to God. And um, the beggar looks at this priest and says, I am very close to God because you see, the Father is so very fond of me. That's what the beggar said to the priest. My Father is so very fond of me. Uh, and that, that, the, the reason Bernie Manning tells that story is because that was actually the day his priest friend was converted. Because the priest did not know that God was also very fond of him. This beggar became the evangelist. And, and I share that because the beggar, I think, had an appropriate view of God that God um, didn't tolerate him. Um, God didn't just love him. God didn't just accept him. God was deeply fond of him. God liked him. And the moment that's our image of God, all of a sudden, I think the question of motivation changes, doesn't it? Um, Because the truth is that as human beings, our motivations are good and bad, selfless and selfish all at once. And the moment we try to separate them, we find that we can't. You know, um, Jesus tells this parable about um, uh, the wheat and the chaff kind of growing together, and the disciples, you know, want to kind of pick out the chaff and let the wheat grow. And Jesus says, no, 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 let them grow together, and at the harvest time, they'll be separated. And I think that's true about the human soul. We have good motives and bad motives that always grow together, motives driven by love and motives driven by fear. But at the end of the day, if God is fond of us— what does it matter, right? Because God's going to sort it all out in the end in a way that's good and pleasing 
uh, and that works for our salvation and the healing of the world. And so I think that'd be my answer to that question. Yeah. What else are you thinking about? Yeah. That's a great, you know, that's a great comment that that knowledge that we're being caught. So let's say, you know, that um, that I'm standing on top of the roof of this building here with a blindfold uh, and it's just a fun exercise. There's a wonderful net 10 feet below uh, and I jump, you know, uh, with a blindfold into that net right after I leap and I'm falling. Um, there's a net there either way. But if I know that there's a net, it's a wonderful thrill. If I don't know there's a net, I think that I'm dying, right? It's the exact same experience. I'm falling, but my belief in the net being there psychologically changes my experience of that. And I think that that's right, that, um, that whenever we trust that God is with us and, and those falls, uh, it completely changes the way we show up uh, to life. So I'd agree with that. Yeah, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I think it's more of the second. I mean, I, I think now my first book, um, which I don't have today, you can order it off Amazon, which it, it's written from a different perspective, I think. New clothes, putting on Christ and finding ourselves. It, it's a little bit more um, prescriptive. It actually will kind of give you some practices and things to do. But falling into grace, um, I intentionally made more descriptive than prescriptive. I tried to describe uh, God's grace and what life is like more than uh, prescribe what you should be doing because, you know, I mean, it's, it's just like that spiritual question of, well, what do I need to be doing? And uh, the last thing I wanted to do is to give you a five-point plan on how to jump and fall. Uh, what, what I want is for us to wake up and to see God's presence and God's grace in the midst of our falls, in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our fear. Uh, and so I think it's more more of the second, yeah. Yeah. Mm, that's a great one. Um, well, uh, I think that in the book, um, I talk about it as the one-way love of God, quoting someone else. But even that's a little incomplete because it makes it sound like grace is uh, something different than God himself. 
right? That there's God and then God has like grace in the same way that I have money that I can kind of throw at you. And it's very easy to make grace transactional, I think, even if it flows one way. But in the book, I talk about it as a one-way love of God, but who is the love of God but God himself? Um, And so I would say that grace is the gift of God's life and of God's presence uh, and um, the details and the fabric that makes up our life and all of creation. I think it's a belief that there is no corner of creation, no corner of our experience where God is not present and making all things new. And I think the impact of grace is that it kind of, it it, it takes the pressure off, I think. Um, That whenever, um, you know, grace is not a God goes 60%, you go 40%. I think grace is God is 100% um, entering our worlds and our life, and that whatever we do is always a response to that. So um, a little bit of rambling, but I would say that grace is the gift of God's one-way love that is not separate from God's very life, and that grace is always present, and that uh, our joy uh, is to wake up to that uh, the best we can uh, in the ordinary moments of our life. That's my definition. What's your definition of grace? I'd be be curious to hear what you think. What does grace mean to you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Yeah, has its own rewards. I I, I like that. Um yeah, thank you for that. What else? What what is grace? Yeah. Uh Yeah, I mean, I, I said so the question is, how does grace, I mean, I think about the parable of the prodigal son, right, that there's a, there's a man who had two sons, um, 
one of them's like, hey, dad, um, I hate you. Give me half my inheritance. I'm leaving. And he goes and, and waste it all. I mean, just and not just waste it. Waste it on things that are traditionally sinful and awful and yucky. And, and then you have this other very, very dutiful, um, obedient son who ha- has logged every hour, knows exactly when he's been working in the fields and, you know, all that stuff. And the younger son, uh, why does he come home? He doesn't come home because he loves his father. Uh, he doesn't come home because he realizes that he's made a mistake and he needs, he, he goes home because he's hungry. And he's like, I literally have no other options. It's either die or go home. And he go home. And when he goes home, he resolves. I mean, he's got a speech, you know, I'm not worthy to be called your son, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and so what are we told? We're told that the father uh, is day after day looking for that son. And when he was a long way off, meaning he had been looking and watching he goes to run to meet him. He puts his robe on him. He puts his ring on him. He gives him a kiss. He throws him a, a, a big old feast. And so the question is, how did that experience change uh, the son? Well, we don't really know because that's where the parable ends. But I imagine it changed everything. Um, and, and what we do know from that parable is that the alternate experience of like counting every action of like knowing exactly what we've done, uh, it, that actually didn't change um, the older son who wouldn't even go to the party. And so um, how does grace change us? I think it changes us slowly, you know? Um, but I think after a while, the only thing that actually can enable us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is a deep heart knowledge that God loves us with all of God's heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and so how does that experience change? Just, I think slowly, but I think it's the only thing that actually does change us would be, would be my stab at it. Yeah, Mike. Yeah. Ten years ago, yeah. I think we had a question over here and then back here, yeah. Thank you. What do you mean?
And so that's that's helpful. Tell me, tell me, what's your definition of practicing grace? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think um, I don't disagree with any of that. Um, I, I think that uh, in terms of practicing grace and extending grace, um, uh, I, I can only speak to my experience. But um, and this kind of gets back to the motivation uh, question. And I'm going to kind of shift answers a little bit there uh, is that. I do know what it's like to offer forgiveness and to feel really, really good about myself for doing it uh, because that's my Christian duty and, you know, I'm kind of really obsessed with me and what I'm doing. Uh, And I know what it's like to offer forgiveness as an intentional leaning into uh, a grace that is already present. And those are two different practices. And so whenever I say that grace changes us slowly, I think that's that slowly the same practice uh, might feel a little bit different in our life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I think we have time. Yeah. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a great theological question. Um, hmm. So the question is, why do we fall but God descends? Never been asked that one. Yeah. 
Yeah, so just one, one clarification about the different uses of falling before I take a stab at that question and give you a wrong answer, because that's a hard one. Uh, um, in the book, with respect to falling, and we've used it this way in, in the conversation, and maybe I, I have to, I actually never in the book, to my knowledge, talk about falling as requiring any intentionality on our part in the book. Uh, I think I, I talk about it more uh, of the second two of things happening to you uh, and, and also uh, just kind of the experience of um, not always being in control and that illusion kind of being shattered. But as to the question of, of why do we fall and, and God descends, uh, I don't know how to really answer that question other to say that God doesn't fall because um, God is God and that there is some... <laughs> wisdom, competency, uh, sovereignty, I mean, whatever, you know, adjectives you want to throw at the board, um, that, uh, you know, I, I think of the difference, I think of, a di I think of a fall just being crazy, you know, like, uh, of really needing to be caught. Uh, I, I think of a descent, uh, really having, uh, uh, an intentional pouring out and some some mission behind it. Uh, and so I really don't know how to answer that question, but I'm really struck by the question itself that um, I guess all I can say is that there's a bias there on the writer's part uh, that a descent is more proper to God than a fall, where, which kind of implies like out of control. Yeah. Yeah. Most likely, yes. Um, you'd make an excellent systematic theologian. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I, yes. I mean, that's. I, I think that. I think that if if you were to kind of like, you know, kind of, at least at least that that question would be a, a classical Western, you know, Thomist, uh, uh, you know, Augustinian kind of systematic theological perception. I, I think I think the answer would be yes, but they're a lot smarter than I am. I think people on a different end, uh, process theologians, other kind of people might answer that question much much differently. Um, I'm not smart enough or well read to give that a really good answer. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that God can't do anything that isn't wise is the way that I would answer that question. I, even as I said, anyway, um, you know, intentionality, you know, I, at least our everything we have are words. We're throwing words to try to understand the wordless. We have form to understand the formless. Um, but whenever I think of intentionality, I mean, the first thing I think about is a human brain. God doesn't have a brain. God created the brain. <laughs> you know, God is intelligence. God is wisdom. And so, um, yeah, so I, I would say that I, I would say that God, that everything God does 
as intentional before I think I'd say it's not intentional, but I think I just stay out of that altogether and say that God only does what is wise, what is good, what is fitting. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and we try. It's important to yes, it's important to try. I think that we we use our best words knowing that any word can become an idol if we attach to it too much. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas after writing his volumes upon volumes of brilliant systematic uh theology, he one day he just said, "Everything I've written is straw." You know, just ev- it's all straw compared to the reality. I'd rather have the straw than have nothing, but it's still straw, he said. Yeah, right. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So, so I think one of the things that I have a chapter in there. So what is what is entitlement really? What you know and and I think about the the um and and what fuels it? What sustains it? Um I think about um especially the entitled, you know, younger kid whatever the 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 bias stereotype and entitled young person whatever that looks like. Uh, I have uh, a chapter in there on purpose. It's chapter four, and I talk about grace and purpose. I share that because um, uh, I talk about um, two things that I think often stand away in the way of us living into our purpose, one of which is anger that might not be relevant to this conversation, but the other is uh, a deep desire to be extraordinary. Uh, I talk about that in chapter four, uh, to be deeply, deeply significant. I don't quote uh, Brene Brown here, but one of the things she says is that um, that often narcissism and entitlement comes from a, a deep shame-based fear of being ordinary. And so um, whenever I think, you know, whatever I think about like someone who's deeply, deeply entitled, we always see the surface layer of that. Uh, and the surface layer of that, uh, it's just like yucky. It's like self-absorption and the world revolves around me and my needs and wants are more important than everything else. But what, what, what's, really, what's really beneath that facade? And I think, um, and this is where a deep compassion comes in, and I think spiritual eyes are necessary to see, that behind, you know, uh, a self-absorbed, entitled um, person who we're quick to label a monster or just like get over yourself, uh, is a deeply, deeply scared, fragile and shame-prone human being. And, um, and and all I can say, you know, so the first thing I want to see when I see someone who's entitled, I, I don't want to see their, enti- I want to see through the entitlement because if all I see is entitlement, I'm going to feel contempt and I'm going to feel angry. And where does that get us in today's world, feeling angry and contempt whenever we see someone who's entitled? Uh, what I do want to see, uh, what I do want to do is look through that and see the fear uh, and, and the shame uh, that comes with, you know, not knowing who they are that kind of creates 
uh, that false self of entitlement so I can have compassion on them. Um, and, and to remember that perfect love casts out fear. That's what the Bible says. So the only thing that actually can, um, can kind of take entitlement apart uh, is not condemnation, but that experience of love. And so the only thing I can say about the relationship between the grace-filled life and the entitled life is that there's like this inverse relationship, I think, between the experience of grace and walking around feeling entitled. You know, the thing about grace, I think, is that it has the capacity to make us bold without making us arrogant. Um, the difference between boldness and arrogance is that uh, boldness has an element of humility in there. Uh, we know uh, all at the same time that we are deeply, deeply important and significant because God knows our name. God loves me. God, you know, as Paul said, loved me, gave himself for me, but not in a way that God does not feel the exact same way towards every single human being. Uh, and so we're both incredibly significant and not significant at the same time, and it kind of creates this, this wonderful humility, I think, whenever we live there. And so just a long-winded way of saying that, um, you know, beneath the facade of entitlement is a lot of fear and shame, and I think the church's response is to see through it and uh, to set appropriate boundaries, to not enable, but, you know, to not, to not buy the facade, to know there's something, some real hurt there. Yeah. yeah. Say more. Certainly, yeah. I mean, so I, I think about the parable of the sower. You know, we often read that as like a moral lesson. Oh, how can I be good soil? You know, that's, a, you know, that's just, I understand why you read it that way, because we all do, but uh, I don't think that's what the parable is. The point is, is that God's, that, that the farmer spreads the seeds of love recklessly over all types of soil, and that God's grace is everywhere. Some falls in good soil, some falls on the path, some falls in the thorns. Uh, and so God's grace might fall deeply on an entitled person, and it might be the seed that falls on the path and the birds eat it up. And so th there is an element, I think, of receptivity and perception there that I'm hearing for God's grace to truly bear fruit in our life. But I think that the grace is always there, whether we perceive it or not. And that's why I think Jesus opened the eyes of the blind so often, right? There's so much about uh, the blind being healed, you know, in hearing those stories, we are to ask the Lord to open our own eyes so that we perceive, so that we see grace in our life, in every encounter, in every circumstance. I mean, that's our prayer, I think, as Christians. Um, Mike, how are we doing on time? I don't, it's 10.08. I don't, okay, great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.